0: For Tuesday, March 23rd, 2021, this is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, vaccines are a great tool to slow the spread of COVID-19, but they're not for everyone.
1: The general public is well served by being vaccinated, but there are tens of millions of people throughout the world who are not good candidates for vaccination. George
0: Painter, president of the Emory Institute for Drug Development, joins me to discuss the role of antiviral drugs in fighting the pandemic and the latest on one he developed. That's next.
1: Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org.
0: As some researchers have worked to make COVID-19 vaccines, others have worked on therapies that help infected people recover faster. One antiviral drug working its way through clinical trials was developed here in Atlanta at the Emory Institute for Drug Development on a team led by George Painter. He's with me now to discuss that drug and the general role of antivirals in fighting this pandemic and the next one.
1: George, thanks for talking with me. I'm happy to do it, Sam.
0: We're here today to talk about this drug that at one point was called um, uh, EIDD-2801. How did you come to start working on this particular drug?
1: Well, in 2013, we responded to a request for proposals from the Defense Threat Reduction Agency to find a medical countermeasure uh, for infection by alpha viruses. And there are three of them that are endemic to the Americas, Venezuelan, Eastern and Western equine encephalitis virus. And Eastern equine encephalitis virus is becoming more and more frequent in the Eastern United States, and it can lead to invasion of the brain of the CNS and some very bad outcomes, bad morbidity and significant mortality. So that's where we started. That's what we started the program on.
0: Walk me through the evolution from there to maybe the moment when you realized this drug might be effective against SARS-CoV-2.
1: Well, interestingly, this class of drugs tends to be very broadly active against viruses and a number of families of RNA viruses that carry their genomic material as RNA instead of DNA like we do. And we saw significant activity against respiratory viruses, flu, and SARS and MERS. So as we advanced the drug, we wanted to open an investigational new drug application. So the first one we wanted to do was flu, because the drug candidate was active against avian flu, which, and then secondarily to SARS and MERS, because there really was no therapeutic agent available for those infections. And everybody was suspecting that sooner or later, another coronavirus would emerge. So in January of 2020, we were well on our way to accumulating the material to file an IND for influenza with a secondary indication for SARS and MERS. And then along came SARS-CoV-2. And by March, the WHO had declared it to be pandemic, and the whole program pivoted to developing a countermeasure, a therapeutic agent for the prophylaxis and treatment of SARS-CoV-2. So we had a significant amount of data in animal studies that showed that EIDD2801 could both protect against the spread of SARS-CoV-2 and effectively treat SARS-CoV-2 infections in those animals. And as this moved along, there was a need to have a generic name. That's required at some point along the development process, and you apply to a committee, and the name that came back was Molnupiravir. It
0: seems like you were working on this potentially to fight a bunch of different kinds of viruses. So what's kind of the specific mechanism um, that this drug uses to do
1: that? The virus encodes a very important protein that's responsible for generating its genome, okay, the RNA that's required for progeny virus. And the drug interferes with that process that. Protein that enzyme utilizes the four standard uh, nucleobases that are in all RNAs and more or less tax them together in order to form the genome. The drug is recognized as one of those four nucleosides, ribonucleosides, and is incorporated into the growing chain of RNA and it interferes with that. And in fact, it causes that chain to mutate and drives the virus to a point where it's no longer infective.
0: So maybe we want to think about that genetic code as this string of these four different parts. The drug inserts a part that is actually defective and that that keeps the virus from replicating.
1: Right. It causes changes in the virus's RNA that keeps it from replicating.
0: My understanding is there are already some antiviral drugs that have been authorized for use against SARS-CoV-2. Talk to me about how this drug that y'all have developed uh, relates to those. Is it similar to those? Is it different in any way?
1: Well, specifically, let's speak to remdesivir, right? And it's in the same general class of chemistry. Uh, But unlike remdesivir, this drug can be taken orally, so it can be self-administered. It doesn't require IV infusion. So it's better suited for broader use in in a public health emergency. So, for example, if someone's in the family, uh, becomes ill, but isn't required to be hospitalized, uh, they could get a prescription and they could take the drug themselves. And if there are vulnerable people in the family vulnerable to infection, uh, they could take the drug and it would protect them from becoming infected. So that's a rather unique use profile.
0: We're talking on the occasion of a phase two trial that just wrapped up on on this drug. Tell me a little bit about that, because at this point, you're no longer necessarily involved with pushing this drug through the approval process,
1: correct? That's correct, Sam. It's we recognized our limitations, um, in the academic setting. So we found a commercial partner that could bring a lot of money, uh, quickly into the process and accelerate development. And that was Richback Therapeutics. And we worked with them closely to get through phase one. And upon completion of phase one, I acted as an advisor to help them through phase two, but by that time, they had formed a partnership with Merck. And that's actually what needed to happen to bring the power of a very large multinational pharmaceutical company to bear on the problem. So right now, the development is in the hands of Merck.
0: And then with this recent um, phase two trial, walk me through what that trial actually showed.
1: Well, the purpose of this trial is to identify a dose. It's the first time that you actually associate exposure to the drug to a desired outcome. And here the, the desired outcome was a drop in how much infectious virus was on board a patient. And there was a dose-related drop in levels of infectious virus in patients. and by day five, at the highest dose, there was no infectious virus on board patients. But on the other hand, people who received placebo, it was a placebo-controlled study, were still shedding virus at day five and actually all the way out to day 15. So that's the outcome of the phase two. Now, that data will be used by Merck and the FDA, to decide on a dose to carry into phase three. And in phase three, there's not only virologic endpoints, but there needs to be a demonstration of clinical benefit that people have less severe symptoms or they get better faster. So that's where the development uh, process is now. This is
0: Did You Wash Your Hands?, I'm Sam Whitehead talking today with George Painter, president of the Emory Institute for Drug Development. We're discussing the role of antiviral drugs in fighting the pandemic. Vaccines have gotten a lot of attention in this pandemic and they've been developed at a pace which we've never really seen before. Talk to me about just generally the value of antivirals as well in fighting a pandemic, not just uh, inoculations.
1: Yeah, I mean, from a public health perspective, the general public is well served by being vaccinated, right? So you quickly get to a point where you have herd immunity, which is discussed extensively. But there are tens of millions of people throughout the world who are not good candidates for vaccination. They're immune suppressed because of cancer chemotherapy. They're immune suppressed because of organ transplant. They're immune compromised because they're living with HIV AIDS. And any number of conditions like that. Or frankly, as you get older, uh, you are unable to mount as robust of immune response as you can when you're younger. So certainly there's going to be a benefit in uh, much older populations.
0: Do you think that enough attention has been paid in in the scientific community and maybe just by the public health community and the general public to uh, antiviral drugs?
1: No, I don't. I mean, early on, there was a very robust attempt to develop monoclonal antibodies, which are, right there, more of a drug, even though they're biological. But I think the idea of having, let's look ahead to the next pandemic. If we have a drug on board that can be used in people to keep the number of cases down to control the virus while a vaccine's being developed, think if we would have had that in the onset So we could have tried to keep control until such time as vaccines were available. And then again, you know, another potential use is as variants arise that begin to escape from vaccine coverage, then you have a drug that hopefully retains its sensitivity to the variant. And again, you can keep control of that infection until a booster is is, um, identified that can be given to protect against the variant. So there are a lot of uses like that, Sam, a lot.
0: Are there similar drugs in in the pipeline, antiviral drugs like this one that you worked on? And maybe where are they um, in the pipeline?
1: There's a lot of work that's sponsored by the NIH, uh, the vast majority of it by the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease, looking for medical countermeasures for a large number of RNA viruses, highly pathogenic influenza, like avian influenza. Um, Other viruses with pandemic potential, like enteroviruses, you know, the one that causes acute flaccid uh, myelitis in children. And there are any number of other viruses, flaviviruses like dengue fever, chikungunya. So there's a lot of development ongoing, sponsored by the U.S. government to try to be prepared should there be another large scale public health emergency involving any one of those viruses. Do
0: you think that this pandemic has taught decision makers, the people who have uh, you know, control the purse strings, who have the power, has it convinced them of of the value of these measures? I mean, we've we've seen in this pandemic, I feel like it's not a stretch to say a bunch of ways in which things have been mismanaged. Is this one of those?
1: Well, I think there needs to be a greater emphasis on the clinical development of antiviral agents that can be self-administered because you just can't have infrastructure in place to immediately respond to every one of the viruses that's on the watch list. I think you saw a pretty robust effort on the part of regulators, the FDA, the European Medicines Agency, and the British equivalent, to try to expedite development process, but then you get to clinical studies and getting all of the infrastructure in place and understanding how to do it. I mean, you might recall in the case of SARS-CoV-2 that patients presented with all kinds of symptoms. Well, which one do you follow? Which one do you follow to look for something that's effective in treating the disease? So there are all kinds of decisions and all kinds of considerations along the path that I don't think had been fully contemplated because they hadn't been fully appreciated. And I think now that the science and basic science and the clinical science community has a better understanding of what you face in a circumstance like this. And I think there'll be a lot of discussion on on how to respond. And you're right. Some of it worked really well and some of it was incredibly difficult to navigate. What are you
0: working on now? And what is your vision for the future um, when it comes to the next pandemic?
1: The virus family that we're working on now is enteroviruses, which cause a great deal of morbidity and mortality in children worldwide. And I think one of the key issues that will be addressed is surveillance. The sooner that you get reliable information that there's been some sort of outbreak while it's still localized with pandemic potential, and you can get that information to the basic science and clinical science communities, you'll have a faster response. And that will give people that develop diagnostics so that you have a point of care diagnostic so the physicians can determine if somebody actually is infected. And then that point of care diagnostic would allow for an endpoint in a clinical study. I I think all that kind of stuff is absolutely necessary for pandemic preparedness. And look, I I work a lot in Russia and Siberia, and the effects of climate change are profound. So the probability that some sort of vector-borne disease ticks, mosquitoes will spread with increasing temperatures, I think it's going to expedite the emergence of the next epidemic or pandemic. So I think there are a lot of megatrends, urbanization, uh, displacement of populations, uh, climate change, all of these things. and, and, And frankly, where the Earth's population is huge, right? It's way, way beyond what used to be defined as the tipping point. So all of these issues are going to drive the spread and more rapid emergence of infectious disease. So I think it's no longer, let's just get ready. I think it's acute. Let's really get ready. Let's understand how to surveil, how to diagnose, and how to quickly get therapeutic agents on board as well as Uh, Vaccines to to address a bigger uh, public health issue.
0: Was this the big one?
1: I don't think so. One of the biggest fears is influenza, and I I still personally I, I believe that. You know, there was a case of human to human transmission of avian flu recently in Russia, and there have been cases reported in Vietnam. Were these highly virulent? Influences able to jump human to human faster, then I think that would be the big one.
0: George Painter is president of the Emory Institute for Drug Development. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets in PR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's also where you can leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening.